2: Welcome to Sawcast number 35. This production of Sawcast is brought to you courtesy of Jocko Willing Productions and his technical staff with Echo Charles. And today we are joined by Tech Tom, our top secret uh, technician. We thank you for joining us today. My name is John Streichermeyer. I'll be your host on Sawcast stories about the secret war during the eight year war in Vietnam. I'm going to turn to a book. Uh, by the way, if you haven't seen Sodcast number 33, I recommend going back to read that first or listen to that one first because this is part two of that Sodcast. Where we have today joining us, Dale Hansen. Again, Dale, welcome back. And as always, I want to turn to your excellent book, Born Twice. And it's another aspect of Saw that until I interviewed you, for SOGCast number 33, I didn't know anything about it. And uh, and then even there, uh, this was an operation called Ford Drum. A Ford like the car, drum like something you beat on. And this was a top secret mission where pilots went out with some people from staff, from Intel staff, back at uh, Contum, at Command and Control Central. And <clears throat> I want to talk about Running into your missions where people are now familiar with how many other times you've confronted death on the ground on a combat mission with SOG. And this one here, um, you were flying low and they had two aircraft for these four drones. There'd be a low one aircraft low with a camera, which you had, and there'd be another aircraft above helping you spot potential targets or areas that you would, and then when you got together, that intel would be turned over right away. And it's something I never heard about. So this is, you were riding, and this was your, uh, again, I'm reading from Born Twice. On my third or fourth flight, I had nearly a full bag in one hand. And this is a full bag of puke. Because the flying is so, um, I don't want to say erratic, but very rough to avoid being shot at. So you had your nearly your one bag of puke and you banked for a photo and several green tracers entered my window inches from my face and the bullet exited the other window. I flinched and squeezed the bag and was back to square one. In other words, you squeezed it, the puke you tried to catch was out. <laughs> In time. I mastered the malady, but still, I often did not eat breakfast when our missions involved a particularly hot target. And again, you're flying, the green tracers come through inches of your face. So that day and time, aside from throwing up all the time because of the extreme pilots, take us back a little bit about when you are introduced or maybe just talk about that incident and then come back to um, ford drum because like i said until i interviewed you for sodcast number 33 i never heard about it
0: yeah this was uh my actually my second tour um and there was one more tour three tours but um uh, on this particular one i was working in the s2 debriefing um teams and briefing them getting them ready and uh, there were only two or three or four of us who ever did the uh, four drum missions. They were super secret. Um, much of the compound didn't know it existed even. But in uh, that one particular morning, um, we had a guy who was flying his first mission and uh, he got shot out of the sky. The bullets went through, he uh, he went through an area twice, which was uh, something you didn't do. And uh, the twelve seven bullets went through the fuselage got him and, and they had and he died and uh it, it it was also right after our camp got shot up uh, with the sappers and all that and uh so basically I told the, the CEO I said I, I'll take his place and um I started doing the the missions as well for drum uh, normally we had two planes uh they'd always be one of our sog people in the back seat and our job was to uh, take pictures and so forth of the enemy looking for intelligence. And at some point, uh, we actually were so effective that uh, the information we could get obviated the, the need of sending in a recon team to do it. But we had one plane at uh, 5,000 feet. And the, yeah, other and one the would BDA
2: be, would be at bomb damage assistance. That would be a BDA. Our, right? Yes. Yeah, and
0: other ones as well. And the other one would be at uh, 50 feet. And uh, the upper one would, would steer us toward a target. And then we would get 50 feet, sometimes below the trees, and the tree the plane would uh, tip sideways just to get between the trees and stuff. And uh, Whoa. It, uh, we, it was almost solid aerobatics a lot of times. And uh, and I was sick half the time. Uh, I was pretty worthless. I'd have the camera in one <laughs> hand, which you squeezed it once, and it would go bang, 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 tick, picture after picture. And then I'd have my little car 15 out the win- other window because I still wasn't quite sure I wanted to just take pictures, you know. <laughs> and, um, but anyway uh, it was so rough and stuff I, I I would get really sick and I'd puke out the window Well, it, that didn't work it would throw it right back inside yeah. the airplane and then I thought well I'll fill up the bag and throw the bag out the window and that didn't work for the same reason so what I would do is I'd be puking in the bag and looking for intelligence and all that stuff and uh, <laughs> when the bag got half full I would tie it off and put it on the floor and I'd be okay so here I was just getting ready and getting my uh, uh, aerobatic stomach all ready again, and um, boy, the bullets came through my window, and I could just see the green, uh, green uh, tracers going right past my eyes and out the other door, and and uh, boy, I was had one hand underneath the puke bag and one on the top of it, and I flinched and I squished the bag, and and all the stuff went flying. But after a while, I, I got to where I could uh, no longer become so so sick, you know, and, and I could control it and stuff. And, yeah. uh, actually, it, I take pictures and, and we were so low over a lot of targets and flying right over enemy uh, people that um, you could recognize if, if it was somebody I knew on the ground, <clears throat> I would be able to recognize who that person was. And uh, we were that close. and uh, Wow. Yeah. and. It, Hopefully, when we were going between the trees and stuff, they didn't hear the plane engine because of the foliage. And all of a sudden, we'd be right over it, and I'd be clicking the pictures. So by the time they got the rifle up, you know, they would be shooting, and it would be behind us. And, um, but it took a while, and it was extremely effective. Um, we did bomb damage assessment and, and uh, tried to find truck parks and, and so forth. And we had our as own. As soon as you
2: found it, then that you would get the word to Hillsboro Moonbeam for tactical air to come back and hit it or send in the hatchet for us.
0: Right. Yeah. Or just plain look for intelligence and um follow the the Ho Chi Minh Trail and uh, it would be bombed and we would look for well, are they deviating the trail and so forth? So what you, what's your time frame here?
2: Second tour of duty, you're at Contoon, this is nineteen yeah. seventy? Um
0: yeah, probably early 70. Early seventy, yeah. yeah. Okay,
2: yeah. just want to get the time frame set because first tour duty, 69. second tour duty is where we are right now, yeah. and you'll come back. But well, we'll get back to that yeah. after we get back with this. But mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to get the time context.
0: Yeah, uh, but they were they were so effective, uh, um, and not very many people did them. Um, maybe uh, maybe a half a dozen total in the entire war ever flew these um, missions, uh, and we had our own little air force. Uh, of pilots, and they were called. It, well, we called them SPAF, uh, SPAF, SPAF pilots. Right, <laughs> and that stood for Sneaky Pete Air Force, and uh, they called themselves the Headhunters, and uh, um, great people, um, uh, dedicated, and uh, doubly dedicated because uh, what we did was so secret and so valuable. Uh, double dedicated because uh nobody even their own other pilots didn't know what they did yeah. they were dedicated to us they were unsung heroes in the sense that um, is probably the most dangerous things that they
2: ever did and again just so I, I forget if we said it earlier or not but you were flying in basically a1s with a pilot's up front seat you're in a second seat in the back right and um so this also uh part of the training the pilots at some point wanted to train you all so anybody in the back seat, in the event that the pilot got shot or was incapable of flying, you or any back seater would be able to take over the aircraft because i right. never heard that part either. Yeah. And and so it, here's a Green Beret. With, I don't know if you had any flight experience now, other than us going through training with helicopters and whatever. Um, and they're So it talks a little bit. So let's assume... And then I want to get back to the book after you go through some general training on that. Yeah,
0: we had the pilot in the front, and then we were in the back, and it was very cramped. Uh, I, I always wore my web gear. And it was almost moot whether I would be able to move around with the camera and so forth. <laughs> that tight. But I, I would see the the pilot in front, and I always wondered if if he got killed, we're hung. You know, yeah. we, we we're we're in dead trouble. You know, but uh, he he said all is not lost because they they had a pipe. From where his controls were, it was just a, a hollow metal pipe that went through the floor, all the way down through the back seat, and in the back there was a hole, in in the uh, right about where my feet were, and off to the side there was a, a pipe, and if we were quick, we could grab that pipe and screw it into that hole, and then I could use the same ailerons and um, uh, vert, you know up down as he had. Yeah, and if I reach forward, I could get um, a throttle, but I have to really know where it is and yeah, reach forward. Yeah, throttle's pretty important. Yeah, <laughs> but then if we had a crosswind or anything like that, we we had none. We, no way to compensate. So what we figured out, we had to figure this out ourselves. The this only way to compensate.
2: the special forces guys riding with the air force and their yeah, bird dogs.
0: Yeah, because uh, when I when I came on, <laughs> so the other guy in the back seat was killed. He Ooh, was shot. Really? And, uh, and so we thought, well, the next time, it could just as easily be the uh, pilot. Yeah, And he wants, if he's wounded, he wants to get back and, and so forth. So we had to come up with some way that we could fly the plane from the back seat. And so we had this pipe. I could, if I was fast, I could control my emotions. I right. Screw it into that pipe, Reach forward for a throttle, and if we had crosswind or something, we, we had no uh, ability to control the till. So what we decided we would do is we would use the door, and we, if I needed to compensate for drift, if you want to I'd, turn I'd push right, the push the door open. Door to the left. Yeah.
2: If you want to go left, push the door to the right. Yeah.
0: So <laughs> and that's all we could come up with, you know, and um, so we would practice. Uh, we did it first on on uh, pieces of paper, and I, I I think I mentioned in the book. Uh, When I got with the pilots, you know, we decided we're gonna learn this. And I got a guy from the south, uh, Alabama, Oklahoma, something like that. And uh, he was gonna teach me. He was looking for something to write on. And there was a a poster up on top. It was the one from Apocalypse Now. And and we pulled (laughs) that down. We wrote on the back of it. And he showed me the shape of a wing and why. A wing wants to the dynamics raise.
2: of yeah. the uh, Yes, the aeronautical yeah. dynamics. Yeah.
0: Uh, Bernoulli's principle and yeah. all the rest of it, you know. And so we practiced on that. Then we looked at what parts of the airplane would do what we wanted it to do. Then we went out to the airplane and, and I sat in the pilot seat and I would practice and okay, you want a bank left? We practice that. Then the next thing was to do it from the back seat and we would practice that. So
2: you got a little practice at least. little bit. Because what I like to do is to go back to your well-written book, again, Born (laughs) Twice. Yeah. And so on this occasion, you're flying. Captain Arnold is the pilot. And you're flying. uh, You've already thrown up. You've taken care of that. You've taken some pictures. And uh, you're, you're in the middle of some communication with the high plane. And the high plane says, you're taking heavy fire from the tree line. Watch it. Watch it. Arnold's voice, your pilot, came back high-pitched and full of dread. Yeah, I got the tracers coming at me and, ah, I'm hit, I'm hit. Arnold slumped forward with his chest against the yoke. The nose of the plane pitched forward and we began to dive. Electricity shot through me. The ground and the side of the mountain was fast approaching. Hey, Arnold, Arnold, I shouted. As I slapped him on the back, his head lolled to one side and his arms hung limp. I looked again and saw the ground continue to close with the plane and realization hit me. The pilot is dead. It took only a moment for it to sink in that Arnold was leaning against the yoke and putting us into a dive. With both of my hands, I grabbed his collar, yanked him on the side, glanced through the window The ground was closing with a blur. I grabbed the pipe and tried to jam it in to the tube on the floor as we had done when we trained. My hands were shaking and the bar bounced all around the tube and I couldn't fit it in. Calm yourself, I shouted in my head and willed the pipe into the tube. My eyes wanted to tear when I felt the pipe fit into place. I glanced through the window individual branches of trees appeared. I pulled back on the stick and let out a long breath of air as the Cessna came out of the dive and we leveled. I gave it throttle, raised the nose, gained altitude. My heart slammed against my chest as trees shrank to shrubs below us. Adrenaline pumped through me. My heart pounded in my ears, but I felt I was in control for the moment Enough time for the plane to guide us back. Nice job, a voice said over the headset. Nice job. Nice wake up, Arnold. Tap him on the shoulder. I stared at the headset. Someone was shouting. I looked up. Arnold was looking back at me, unwounded and quite alive. Nice job, Yankee. I guess we would have survived that when he smiled. Welcome to Headhunters. (laughs) <laughs> whoa yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the situation that had you been shot this is yeah. some of that realistic training and again the intel that you all get at, or able to capture from those type
0: of missions yeah. talk about shaky fingers you know we all get nervous and so forth in combat and stuff and we control ourselves but when you're trying to put a little pipe into a hole in another pipe <laughs> on a diving plane and you're scared to death and and it's vibrating as well, and you're trying to get that shaking tube into a hole oh. in another tube. Um, that is scary, indeed. Yeah, and I, and I gotta say too, you know that there were so many other um, two or three other guys, uh, Mike Buckland, Ted Wiserick, and a couple other guys who flew more missions than I did. Uh, I, I don't want to diminish them. Um, they stuck with it for a long time and and did mission after mission. And uh, it was a pretty hairy thing uh, when you went over there, when you're 30, 40, 50, 60 miles away. At one point, and I think it was Ted Wizrick, we were so far behind enemy lines doing the four drum missions that we were almost at the end of gas range. And they actually flew over anchor Wat, which is in Cambodia, really? which at that time was the headquarters for all communist North sure. Vietnamese armies. And they actually flew over Anchor Wat and came back. So that's the extent uh, of one of our missions. They're very So scary. when you
2: landed at Khantum, your second tour of duty in 1970, this operation <clears throat> excuse me, had been going on for a little while. Just a little while, yeah. Then you get recruited for it. And then that was one of your key jobs there. And again, your MOS was intelligence. Right. And so you brought a critical component, whereas people like myself and other guys would get to Vietnam as a camo. Guy, they wouldn't know some of the little finesses. Like for example, uh, when on our first Sog cast, you talked about how, was an intelligence officer after an ambush, when you killed two Chinese officers who later would turn out to be a great intel scoop, one of the historic scoops by Sog, um, you did something I never would have thought of, nor did we train for it. FOB one, which was to take the clothes and the boots off of the dead Chinese. And everything that you capture, you put it in the bags and brought it back for analysis because there's detailed analysis that could be gained from things like that. So you're an intelligence officer and what other aspects? So when you come back, you get trained up for this, um, you get the mission briefing. Then once you gather that Intel, it goes to CCC, then it goes back to a uh,
0: headquarters, Saigon. Yeah. Some kind of a, uh, or even Langley or something like that. But like if the if um let's just say the the person we killed um was shot in the stomach we would even try to collect stomach uh uh material and they would say what the person had for lunch where the 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 food was grown uh, if the man was healthy and so forth they would analyze the blood on the person really yeah every uh they could even look at the sweat in the clothing uh, we would gather the clothing. They'd say, this is cotton. It was grown in some place. Um, uh, the ammunition was um, made in Czechoslovakia or something like that. And they, they would have a whole idea in the whole world how they were supplied and so forth and how they were brought up. So I, it, uh, you mentioned you know, taking the clothing of the Chinese colonels. Yeah. Imagine being totally under fire, uh, 30 miles behind lines. I'm wounded already. Uh, first at least twice times. Yeah. yeah and uh, um, here we are uh undressing this guy uh, we, we've taken his satchel and found all the intelligence in it to, and money This, yeah and the spy uh, a list that he had where he was going to pay off all the agents and right uh, the top secret orders and stuff and then we're taking the time to take his web gear uh, his pants his clothes and all of that kind of thing put it in a satchel in the meantime we're being shot at you know and the, the bullets are, are the Uh, rounds are exploding in the trees and so forth
2: man oh yeah it's just so and so that's a key thing about how you got this job and the people that had that were flying the special forces Mm -hmm. people in SOG that were flying that mission so then when did Ford drum in were you there for a part of that or had you returned home by that time
0: um, I don't know when it ended um, uh, because I went into the company. I t- went into a Mike Force from there. Mike just, Force uh, or Hatchet Force? Uh, they're almost synonymous. Mike Force, Hatchet Force, mm-hmm. Reaction Force. Yeah,
2: guys in Mike Force are
0: arguing. That's yeah, great, cool. yeah. Mike Force is usually attached to the B team, and uh, Hatchet Force is usually to the. Well, Jack camp. Tobin had a perfect description. Okay, Jack Tobin, who ran
2: missions with Mike Force uh-huh. years ago, he said, "You saw guys, you recon teams, you go in, you snoop and poop." Yeah. You look around and you want to just go home, take some pictures, and do an intel report. Yeah, but if you get in a firefight, you'll defend yourselves. Now, Mike Force, we went out to hunt those little commie fuckers. That's right. That's right. <laughs> There's a difference. Yes. And a hatchet force was the uh, platoon, company size elements that we'll get into a little bit more, and we get into that, the second part of your book mm-hmm. about your third tour of duty, and mm-hmm. then uh, what has so did, I. Don't want to blend it here but so from flying in fort drum ford drum then you're also going to your Mike force or a hatchet force mm-hmm. and what happened there were there many missions from that point or do you wrapped up went back and then yeah and, it, it, and it's kind of hard
0: to tell when when the two tours uh, sure. and you know they kind of merged because uh no leave in between um but someplace in between you know i left ford drum and uh I think when the A-teams were being, you know, Doc Peck, Doc Siang were being under siege, uh, Ben Het was just finished. And uh, seeing our, our heroic people, you know, a dozen Green Berets and a 100 or 200 uh, Montagnier tribesmen holding off a couple thousand, I almost felt guilty. Right. At the end of the day, going home to a hot meal and a warm bed, and I just wanted to get back on the on the field. And uh, so I went back and uh, joined uh, what we called Reaction Force. So it was actually just Company A. Sure. Um, of Sog, you know, uh, on uh, CCC.
2: Yeah, because you had Company A, which was yours. Company B, which later in 1970, September, did Operation Tailwind. Right. Under Captain Gene McCarley, which we talked about in other cast, And then C Company. And I'm not familiar because I'm, um, I've interviewed guys with Contoon, but I was <laughs> never there. Yeah, and, and we it's never had how different.
0: Yeah, we never had a seed company, and I was—I—I uh, I gave some of the intelligence briefing for Tailwind, so when, when that, they were going out in the field, and um, I was, I was still in the intelligence uh, briefing, debriefing teams and all that. And, you know, again,
2: sometimes your your units at Contum did do in-country missions and we talked mm-hmm. a little bit about that in the first sawcast. And here again, part of this there's these two major A camps as well as Ben Het, which was uh, which we talked about. But again, you guys were there and mm-hmm. you had a section in your book where you had the front seat to a napalm drop mm-hmm. and it's just it had such a <laughs> you know the Air Force pilot comes up says I got some napalm and you're listening to him talk to Covey, and he gives you the directions, and uh, the answer from the sergeant on the ground says, says we, we're we outside the wire. Put the napalm 50 meters out, and the Air Force pilot goes, Roger, get your heads down. So you're watching this, and you're writing, below, I watched the bombing run of that jet as it passed south to north along the wire. A gigantic, a gigantic ball of igniting white phosphorus rose along the entire west side of the American stronghold. A long volume of gray smoke billowed above the strike. Right on target, Phantom. You got them, about a hundred of them. That time, roger that. What can I do for next? Copy. Your next target is, but just to see those camps and have that first seat to see a napalm run yeah. so effectively used. That's one yeah. of the clear examples of that. One of the
0: other aspects of what you just read is, um, uh, I can't remember. I think it was Doc Pack. Um, there were seven hills on that a camp, and the communists already had six of the seven. And, uh, really? Yeah, and I think there was thirty-seven dead Montagnard in, in plastic bags, outside the dispensary, and they were on the last hill. And uh, the communists were, of course, digging, make trench, making trenches, and digging under the the wire and all that stuff. And you had an E five sergeant who's there on the radio, <clears throat> and and then the air force comes by and um, you know says I've got napalm and the the most calm voice I've heard he says put it on my wire and uh, I, I you know I'm only eight hundred feet above him. yeah. I'm right there, and I can just see all the explosions and everything going on, you know, just right there in the wire. And um, I can imagine the pressure he's on, and and yet he just completely stays calm, and he just put it over my west wire. And I watched the whole field just burst into white napalm and, and all that stuff. And he answers back as calmly as if he was giving a grocery list. He says, okay, now I'll put it over here. I just admired that E-5 sergeant uh, sure. in Kammel, your MOS. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, we called it a
2: couple of airstrikes. Yeah. But again, uh, so we go to Chapter 21, Hatchet Force is the title, and this talks about your return to action. And I, I enjoyed this chapter because it reflects on your mindset. Now, you've been flying above the fray, and you were writing in Chapter 21. It had been on my mind for some time to go back to the field. I do not know why I had this moth-to-flame draw to return to peril when every indication was that our involvement in the war was slowly dying down. I know the attacks on our aid camps supplied some of the narcotic. I wanted to be closer too. no, in the battle itself. I didn't want to cheer them on. I wanted to be with them. I wanted to be the sliding mortar rounds down the tube as fast as they could tear off the extra charges. I wanted to study my rifle against the leaking sandbags of a perimeter as I engaged the attackers. I even longed for the smell of adrenaline, of fear that clung to my clothing after the fight. That odor eloquently said, you are alive. As one of the famous lines in Special Forces reads, you've never lived until you've almost died. For those who fought for it, life has a flavor the protected will never know. Amen.
0: That's by John Stuart Mill. Is that who put it together? John Stuart Mill. Okay, who's John Stuart Mill? Um, He was a, a poet and philosopher, I think. Okay. I remember one time I was I think it was on bright light or something of course I had nunchaku, those karate sticks you know Oh, well, nunchucks yeah yeah and I carry. I always carried nunchucks and and my buck knife always no matter where I went and um, <laughs> I remember I was on bright light waiting to go on a, on a on a thing and just you know how you have wars described as you know hours of sheer boredom followed yes. by moments of terror you know Indeed. And in those times of sheer boredom I wrote that entire, Uh, carved it into the side of my nunchucks by John Stuart Mill. War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks that nothing is worth war, is much worse. A man who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing he cares about more than his own safety, is a miserable creature who can only be made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. I carved that entire thing on the sides Whoa. of my nunchaku, Is that right? Then follows the sheer terror, the, n- yeah. the call. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so it also gave you a chance to get back to working, quote, with your little people. Yes. And that's just, uh, that's part of that special relationship between special forces, which is unique in our training, from mm-hmm. to this day, still in any other unit yep. that I'm aware of, where we're trained not only to be special operators of weapons, intel, intel comma, but also... To work with the business people no matter which country which part of the world we're in so that we're able to work with them mm-hmm. not just go in and say we're going to bring the fight no we want you to come in help you do force multiplication and etc something along those lines so you also i can identify that feeling how you want to get back and you met the little people there they accepted you obviously and you're back on the team and uh as you move forward with that, how did the first couple? How did that go when you got reassigned?
0: By that time, did you get your thirty round magazine yet? Got the thirty round magazines. Okay, yeah. <laughs> they actually started to get more common, you know. Uh, once they realized how important they were, that we could oh uh, compete with the AK forty seven, you know, we started getting them quite a bit. Oh yeah, but uh, uh I to- totally enjoyed enjoyed the people and stuff. We we did our training. But um, the company as I got into it then was unique. I normally had 15, 16 special forces. Well, yeah.
2: I mean, we had the uh, Operation TL win. We had 16, 16. SF and 120 in business troops. Right. And so and we here, of your company.
0: We had three. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I had, there was a captain. Yeah. And a uh, first sergeant and myself. And we sergeant each, Roberts is the first sergeant. And then Captain Roche. Roche was the, the CO. And he took a platoon. And then I took a platoon, so we each had a, a, a platoon, and then together we were um, a, a force. And I, I can't remember if I mentioned, but uh, uh, Roche was um, was originally German. Uh, it was in the German uh, special forces type. Um, he represented Germany in the, in the Olympics and the biathlon and so forth. And then he came to the United States, and. Uh, was uh, working with us and, and became Special Forces. Yeah, because at that time we had
2: many uh, uh, members of Special Forces who had come to the United States, joined the military, and became outstanding Special Forces soldiers.
0: Right, I don't know if that was the Lodge Act or, or something else, but. And you yeah.
2: in your book, again, you have, after you're introduced to them, because you were a little surprised to learn that only three Americans. Yeah and your Captain Roach was, was quite a character, and when he came in to introduce himself, again, he has that Prussian background. I am Captain Roach, three of us, that's all we need. My company is a well-oiled machine, and we are professionals. Our people are well-trained and have good discipline. <laughs> <laughs> the Colonel tells me that you are a good leader speaking to you, and a professional soldier or he would not have sent you to me. He looked at me with blue eyes, then pausing before doing so, offered me his hand. We have three platoons in this company, and we have three special forces. I, the captain, will take one platoon. The first sergeant will take the second. And you, Sergeant Hanson, will be in charge of the third platoon. By way of dismissal, he said, Sergeant Roberts, will brief you course, then he walks away. <laughs> he walks away,
0: as he did every t- every formation. Oh walked away. God. Yeah, he had that old school to him. Oh, absolutely, all the way to the end. I, I don't know if you, you'll get to the thing, but uh, we had this pretty rough mission.
2: Well, yeah, we we want to get into that. Yeah, a little bit. No, uh, we, but that the anyway, one where you do an R O N on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right. Yes, and uh, we
0: had um, <laughs> um we had seventeen. Encounters with the enemy, shot at or full firefights or on different whatever. missions on one mission on one mission seventeen. Okay, and at the end of it, um, uh, he went straight to the officers' club. The first sergeant went to the Huckleberry Inn bar stool. Right, and as normal, I I took the platoon while well, they were looking to give a briefing to us. They they um they decided that what we had learned was so lucrative. They said, well, we're going to send you back in again tomorrow. And they wanted to have a briefing, so I'm going to go look for the uh, CO, the captain, to tell them we're going to go right back in there. And on the way, I go past the dispensary, and I think, you know, we are so lucky that we didn't have serious wounds out of this. So I stopped by the dispensary, and uh, I said, "If, if, if it's okay with the captain, do you have a medic that you can send with this next mission? And he looks at his roster and he says, yeah, I can give you Boxy Brown. Right. You know." And so I didn't want to say, we'll take him because I'm not the CO. So I went to tell the CO. <laughs> we, we got a warning order in about four hours to go back in there. And I says, I stopped by the dispenser and, and we can get a medic. And he just came to attention uh, like a Prussian general and looked at me. He says, Sergeant Hansen, you're messing with my Vor machine.
1: <laughs>
0: it's just like, you know, nothing to change what it is, you know. Well, so you did not take
2: the medic. We didn't have a medic, you know. Oh and, my god! Uh, but also, just for a brief second, our unique relationship with our indigenous troops, and you had a, a line in there where you're talking. Well, uh, actually, a good paragraph explaining Ben B i e h
0: uh B-I-E-H, B-I-E-R. B-I-E-R. B-I-E-R.
2: Okay, and you also had B I E H and one of Go ahead, I'm sorry. That's him. Okay. And uh, so we'll say beer for now. That's even though we got the ace. But again, these are indigenous folks. And if they say, we don't care how they spell it, we just care about how they say it. Yep. So it's beer. And it says, and you're talking about the people that you've grown to have affection with. And also, again, the Chinese liked you because they said, Hansen, never die. And your tribesmen had guarded you with their lives. And one of the people, again, returning to the book, uh, one of my people stands out in my memory. His name was Beer. And as a typical American thing, everyone called him Beer. (laughs) B-E-E-R. He was shorter than many of the yards and was disfigured in war. Napalm had burnt off his upper lip, exposing his teeth. It gave him the aspect of a perpetual snare, a thing that would frighten children in another place. But in a country with decades of war, scars from wounds were commonplace. But the appearance of a snarl did not correctly describe his nature. Beer had a wonderful sense of humor and loved to be with people. He was intelligent, spoke good English, and was one of my shadows on a mission. Beer understood the nuance of a thing and would explain it to the rest of the men. Then over months you go on to talk about some more experiences. Again, people have got. I recommend getting the book to give you a sense of that camaraderie, the esprit de corps between Green Berets and their Indigenous troops that are fighting communism against all odds. And what a, what a what a man!
0: Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: And uh, so earlier I I got to just I'm trying to catch up to you in the book here. We're going faster than I thought we would, but you had this mission. So A Company was tasked With a reconnaissance and force in force of a suspected base area in which there is heavy enemy contact expected. The monsoons were approaching. Air cover could not be counted on to add to the possible dynamics because our key ingredient when we're in heavy contact, our Air Force or any air assets are always critical to our survival in the field. So, on top of going into this big mission with a company, the monsoons are coming. When the monsoons came, everything stopped. Mm-hmm. The Ho Chi Minh Trail stopped. We stopped and just filled sandbags to deal with the flooding because it's just so intense with the rain. And uh, so you had a chance to train up. And um, so on that mission, let's get started where you actually get inserted. How how the insertion go? And whereabouts?
0: How deep were you in the country? little details about that insert. Yeah. Um- I'm not sure what the target was. You know, it seems like um all of our uh missions that counted for us either had a target designator or a name. And this one I don't remember a target designator. Usually they'll say India six or Lima fifty, or they'll say halfback one or something like that. I don't remember them ever giving us a name or a specific target location, but it was Definitely, right, right uh, over the border somewhere, because we were right in the middle of a, of a very hot area, and uh, a recon team was just coming out as we were going in. But uh, we were going to uh, look for information, you know, uh, on the enemy as we always did, and try to interdict forces and so forth. Uh, as we were going to do this, we we split up the three companies. They gave us two more sergeants um, to run the mortars and an extra one with the uh, the captain. And then one went the first sergeant and he would have the mortar uh, people. And so that we, there were five of us now and then a, a company of people as we went in. But we went in uh, in three groups. Uh, uh, the first and the second com- company, uh, I'm saying that wrong, first and second platoon right. went in on one side of a, a, of a long strip of land on a, a, an LZ that was shaped kind of like an artist's palette. And then where the finger would be in that small spot uh, I went w- with my platoon, and they were going to try to drive the communists across that finger of land to where I was all set up for them.
2: And that would be set up with claymores.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I'm claymore nuts. Claymore nuts, you know. Indeed. One one claymore shot seven hundred and twenty pellets the size of buckshot, and uh, the swath was two hundred and fifty meters long. So, Ooh. and nothing in front is going to be living or uh, a problem. So I. I'm big on claymores, you know. So I had several claymores set up and everything. And and uh, I set up on—I on, was the third one in. The other two guys went in first. And then my people went in, and we were just going to just skim the ground and peel off so the communists wouldn't realize that anyone stopped there. Yeah, of course, part of the problem was is that it looked like grass, but it actually it was chest-high grass. And we just were rolling and falling and half-breaking our necks in there. But uh, uh, I had him do a quick recon of the air to make sure the enemy wasn't set up on my side, not his side, you know. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then I found a nice little ridge and set my people up alongside of it and just waited for the, the push to come through. How many claymores did you have out? Um, I think I had four. You uh, I had four when I was in recon and I was sitting sure. with my hands wounded, you know. Yes. Um, I had four in front of me, and, uh, and then I, I I think I had... I think I had two or three uh, machine guns too. Right. So I had that all set up and we were all waiting for them.
2: Well, and then also, is this the moment where you had a unique uh, a point in time where you described in your book of one of these moments in SOG when you're on the ground, you're in enemy territory, you're anticipating contact and your little people have got their hand grenades, are out, the pins are pulled, they're all there. And again, returning to the book, Born Twice, um, you said you are watched breathlessly. We're all anticipating. 20 minutes, nothing happened. But there was definitive movement in the front. A few twigs, small moist ones parted. Tall grass rubbed together and was the pathing of something. Something was passing by. I didn't move. I sensed the men behind me tensing behind their weapons. Then a shape emerged. It stopped its movement for a few seconds and moved again. Another shape emerged from the from the patch. of brush and joined the other. It froze in place, and I made out the shapes. They were deer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was significant because yeah, no kidding. They were driving the deer in front of the, the enemy were, and I had a certain amount of um, a care I had to take too, because in case there were no enemy and the. The brush that I heard moving in front of me wasn't our own people. Right. So I had to make sure I had visual contact and I could really control my people too. Sure. But when the deer came through, they didn't look at me and they didn't look at the side, they looked behind them. And I knew the deer were being driven by something. And so all of a sudden, they actually barked. You you had the barking deer over there.
2: Yeah, which I never knew about. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Teams had been chased out by these barking deer, thinking they were (laughs) dogs, you know. But then anyway, they did a leap, you know, and they they jumped out to the side, and then uh, um, I I started having my people get all ready and all ready, and and then uh, uh, the grass starts parting and I could hear a little bit of movement. Well, let me go back to your uh, book. You, God, you, you really captured do do this than me. moment.
2: <laughs> said um, like now, like you just said, the reeds and the ferns were swept aside. There was movement. We could see it, and. They were approaching the kill zone of my claymore mines. Then, at the place the deer emerged from the forest, soldiers in mustard yellow uniforms appeared. I fired my claymores. My people opened up with their weapons. There were shouts, cries of pain. The pop of AK-47s returned our fire on full automatic. But it was a desultory response. We tossed grenades and continued to fire until we received no more incoming. Move it! I shouted. We assaulted the enemy, firing single shot and short bursts where we couldn't see through the brush. Several enemy lay lie in in postures and that only death could produce. One soldier across the chest of another, his eyes and mouth open in surprise. His skin, the pallor of a caterpillar's belly. There were no wounded. Near the death, near the ambush site was a well used trail. And so, now let's turn to that trail. And what you saw, could you continue to move on? You attacked. Again, our recon tactics were, except for a few other teams that would go in more heavy than ours, we would have, our immediate reaction drills would be to move back to get away from the contact, Mm -hmm. and then we're obviously uh, compromised, let's think about extraction. Mm -hmm. But in your case, you just heard him him bad, and then you charged and ended that enemy assault, which is like, you don't hear that story
0: very often in the No, no, and uh, as soon as I ascertained that all the enemy were taken care of and dead or gone, then I backed us up to our ambush positions and waited for the rest of the team to come in. And, of course, it's, uh, like Captain Roche was the one who calls back. Set rep, he says, you know, I want to know what happened. You know? So, oh, yeah. So I said, uh, um, enemy came through, and I asked, how far out are you? And he, he said, 100 meters, and I said, we won't shoot. So regardless what came, came through after that, I'm not going to shoot because it might be our own people. And so they come through, and uh, our, uh, Roberts yells at me. He says, 12. And I said, 12? I didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> he said, You got twelve, you know, and there's twelve enemy dead in front, you know, and um uh, Yeah. Oh, and I and, and the sit rep I says, uh, um, enemy killed and I said, uh, they have wounded and uh, um there was a high speed trail and I could see that the ground was all torn up like they were running. Yeah. And I could see blood on the leaves. One of my on uh, my indage pointed on the leaves about chest height. You know, there was blood on the leaves, so I knew they had wounded with them. And uh, of course, I told uh, uh, the captain, and he's right away. He says, "We follow, you know, right now." Right. You know, and his whole mindset, you know, it's combat, it's conventional warfare. Now, <clears throat> we're here to kill enemy and win. You know. Yeah, sure. So he did the right thing, you know. And of course, you want to do it immediately before they have a chance to to set up again.
2: Sure. And you continue to press into the jungle, and then for that night, when did you finally the the other part? This mission was it that
0: night that you set up the RON on the Ho Chi Minh Trail? It was the day after that. So on that oh, night we had uh, it was uh, interesting too. But um, Will you talk about it a little bit, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we is- sat up and we got probed a few times um, on that one, as I recall it. Um, uh, I, I'm going around, checking all my people, making sure they're positioned right and where I want the machine guns and all that. And so one of my montagnards says, we'll, we we dig you foxhole, Hanson. We dig you foxhole. And I said, that's great. I don't have to worry about that while I'm doing all the other stuff. And so they dig me a foxhole. And then uh, about the time I finish positioning my people and get back, we get hit. And uh, I, we're hit from the side. It's not heavy, but we're hit. Yeah. And uh, um, the initial thing, since I'm right next to the foxhole, I dive down and I'm coming up except my foxhole is only about a foot and a half deep. It's, it's knee deep because a mountain yard foxhole, they sit in the foxhole and they sit on their heels. And it's plenty deep for them, but yeah. not for an American, you know. Oh, my but, uh, goodness. Yeah, so we over <laughs> we, we return fire, we overcome them, and we assault the position, and there's three dead down there. Um, and, uh, uh, and then we uh, return back, we set up for the night, and we're already positioned too late to get a new spot. Sure. So then toward morning, they probe us again, but this time it's um, RPGs. Well, yeah. Then also, yeah. again, going back to your book, here's a key thing people never
2: think about this. Um, it's sprinkled during the night, enough to send shivers up our spines, but not enough that our people would not be alert. And so that's, again, um, talking about that and writing, you don't mm-hmm. think about being cold in Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. Yeah, but in the jungle. Yeah, welcome to the jungle, baby. It's different yeah. at night.
0: Yeah, in particular, uh, uh, Kontum. I'm not sure about your north country, but it's the central highlands, and that's the highlands, and they're they have mountains four or five thousand feet. Same in Laos yeah, yeah. Further north. Yeah, and, and it's ice cold and, and frost sometimes.
2: Well, yeah, my coldest time in Vietnam was the DMZ in December of '68. God, it was cold. We just we had to cling t- together for body heat. Mm-hmm. You know, we were socked in and couldn't move, and then. Um, while you're there, you're getting back to the book again. The uh, the they were cooking, and the enemy were were. Commiss hit hit had been fu- there had been fires burning, and this was the area that you guys were hitting. Mm-hmm. So the commiss, you're up early. You guys move out. You hit the hit the enemy base camp. <clears throat> excuse mm-hmm. me, or some sort of an encampment. Right. And they're cooking breakfast. Yeah, this is How the nice. next
0: Yeah, this is the next day. <laughs> yes, <clears throat> and um, yeah, we get and it's after we sleep on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, because we're, uh, we're we find the trail finally that there was a recon team before us and he told us about this high speed trail, and uh, the way it was described, it, it was hard packed clay and truck uh, able to move trucks, you know. Yeah, and as I got there, it was hard-packed clay, not a speck of vegetation. I thought in my mind, two elephants could go abreast, full of gear, and walk down it, or trucks. And of course, the captain is looking for a fight. You know, it's a little different than recon. He wants a fight. Oh, yeah. And Roberts told him that that we used back in the old days. They used to stop right on the Minh Trail, and and actually, one of our recon guys did that too. walker joe walker Walker. yep he had a heavy recon team he went right on the ho chi Minh trail got to a bunker wiped out the bunker he says we sleep here and he slept in the bunker on top the ho chi Minh trail and uh we were doing the same thing um he thought well oh the the roberts was saying that you know in the in the past we stopped all traffic that way and uh captain roche that that's a kind of a good idea let's do it this is on a spur of the moment yeah. in Laos on the Ho Chi Minh yeah. Trail. Yeah, we camp here, you know, and so we, uh, and there's a fork in, in the road. And so, um, and I, it's like, and I, my spot actually wound up right at the junction between the, the three. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm curled up in a poncho, and, and I'm thinking, uh, if I don't get shot tonight in the ROA, I'm going to get run over by a communist truck, you know, it's thick. <laughs> oh my gosh. So then, uh, so you get through the night without any contact? Um, We got, there was twice, Uh, I heard shots once, and then uh, the communists hit one of our trip flares. Um, But it was far enough down the road, and uh, uh, whoever was on that element uh, on the end didn't have anything to shoot at, so there was no return fire, but they were there. And and that was about it.
2: So is that where the enemy broke contact and retreated down the road? Yeah, um, and the third platoon was moved out, and then uh, at some point, you we assaulted with a fast walk, nearly a run. Our backpacks, yeah. shoving the air from our lungs with each yeah. footstep, footfall. Yeah. Equipment jostled noisily. Straps and buckles scraped and clunked, clacked in time with
0: each trudging. You're going full force against these guys, chasing. I I love it because you're chasing the NBA. If we we would have continued on that road, Uh they surely would have had an ambush for us because we had fires with them. Right. Um, But uh, as I'm sitting there on the the fork of the road, I I, I noticed know pristine day and my people are going to cook and all that stuff. And I looked down the valley down that one side road, which is also very heavy. And as I'm looking, I'm seeing the, the smoke arise, but, it, you know, like fog coming up. Yeah. And all of a sudden it occurs to me, you know, fog is white or blue, you know, and, and I'm looking down here and I said, that's not fog, that's smoke. And I'm looking down there and then I can smell something. And so I, I, I put one of my mountain yards in charge and go tell the captain, I says, uh, come here. I think we found a base camp. And so he runs over there, and you know, he's all excited. He's speaking more German than ever, and uh, yeah, via assault now, you know. Yeah. And uh, and then it, the matter is, how do we go down the the road? Because they surely heard us, and they should be waiting. Um, and then the other alternative is go through the woods. Well, if we we went through the woods, we couldn't use the mortars because of the right. the trees, True. you know. And Are you I, a double triple canopy there. Yeah, and I was wow. telling telling the captain, I says, if we go through there it'll slow us up they'll hear us and we can't use our mortars to support us so he says vehiclegle right down the, the road right at, right down and, and we did <laughs> you know and um, again he did this your book we were advised by the fob
2: to avoid contact if possible mm-hmm. until the following day mm-hmm. and
0: your captain goes vegle down the road yeah. <laughs> yeah it's crazy yeah so we so we uh, you know we don't run after we don't charge like like TV, you know, yes. but as fast as you can walk, because I want to give them as less time as possible to set up, you know, because yeah. the captain's in charge, uh, but uh, I think I was second group, and uh, uh, Roberts was in the back that time, I think. Um, but anyway, we make our way down, and I, I I must have been toward the front, because I'm looking down there, and the first guy I see is the source of the smoke. He's a cook. He's got this gigantic cauldron, and he's cur- really he must have a giant. It's almost like a, a boat oar. He's co- cooking all this oh, rice yeah. and he's stirring it. And he looks up and and he stares at us. He doesn't know what it, did, his, it didn't yeah. register with him yeah. mentally. That yeah. he's looking certainly at a saw yeah, guy. Certainly no enemy here, you know. And <laughs> he looks up and all of a sudden he drops that oar, you know, that big stir stick, reaches for the rifle, and we and we pop him it's there and then start the assault right off the bat there. Whoa! Yeah. How did the assault go from there then? Good. We just, uh, I I went through, uh, it it turned out that to the right side in that base area, there was an entire um, encampment with bunkers, trenches, uh, uh, sandbag bunkers and all that stuff. That's the part I got. So my people assaulted that. And then off uh, to the left side and and continuing on was um, bungalows on stilts which I think was their officers and cadre and all that stuff. Right. So the rest of the people went that direction. And I remember as we started popping the um, mortars that some of those bungalows started collapsing on the stilts, and they were half down. And I could see the enemy feet running on the backs. So I could see their feet underneath, and they were all taken off in the woods. They probably didn't get their guns in time. Right. And then I assaulted the bunker complex, which was... Uh, as well designed and made as any American we would ever make you know it, oh, is was that right yeah and we just you know jumped in there and threw our grenades and all that stuff and assaulted the whole thing and and uh whoever was in there ran out the backside and uh we essentially captured the whole uh, camp with almost no casualties
2: so you also got uh weapons and and, the do- and intelligence documents out there
0: yeah and uh, I think every single place that we fought when I, when I took out twelve. When I took out three and so forth, we kept gathering weapons. And, uh, you know, they would drop the weapons and run, and I would collect them. And my people were getting kind of encumbered with weapons. They had their own and rucksacks, and they got all these enemy <laughs> weapons, too, you know. Right, sure. Yeah. That's a different
2: aspect. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, and then he, your, your good captain doesn't give up as some back. As, uh, now he changes his ta- ta- tactics to come back and set up an ambush. Yep. Assuming they're going to come get you, yep. Captain said, Roach goes, V set up an ambush, something yep. like that. I'm sorry, I'll just take a little literary license. Yeah, here.
0: and I'm not good on accents either. Um, <laughs> and so he decides where he's going to do is where uh, we were on the road in the first place before yeah. we went down. And they're going to work down there until they find the enemy. And then they're going to do a major attack with the two uh, platoons. Right, And they're going to push them through the trees down to where I am at the camp. And uh, um, so I, I spread my people along... Uh, Kind of the edge of the the ridge line, there's kind of a depression. So it was a natural place for me to set up my people. So I got my platoon there. I put up a couple uh, warning sites behind me because I don't want those guys that ran away to come back behind me. So I got some early warning places behind me. I set up some people back there. Toe poppers or just people? People. Okay. Because I want to know what's back there. Sure. You know, and uh, so the rest of us set up in a, a kind of new. Where, if I were the enemy and I was running from them, where I would be wanting to go. And I set up my machine guns and so far there. And then it starts shooting up there. Pretty hefty firefight, you know, big firefight up oh, above, yeah. you know. And, um, uh, well, also, before you get too far away from the yeah. camp invasion here,
2: you have another first. A company at CCC had what had to be another SOG first. Uh, let me just get to the point here because as you said you killed the cook mm. he knocked over the cauldron and uh, so some some of the little people of your team from the Hatchet Force they walked to the fire scooped up rice and nook mom with their cups returned to their positions and it was sticky rice and they ate it with their fingers I don't you may have been the first hatchet force to eat a meal <laughs> courtesy of the NVA yeah. you ate their food
0: yeah it's it kind of funny uh, because my mountain yards, you know they would go back and they they got handfuls of this and whatever they could put the rice on and they went to my assigned position that i gave them so they were obeying me but as they passed they they took a bunch of rice sure well the captain saw that and he thought that's a, a derelict <laughs> in their orders and stuff and he mm. was going to discipline them and I, I so i tried to intercede and so what I said is oh no captain they're uh, they're trying to put nook mam on their breath yeah, so the enemy- nook
2: mam for anybody that knows, that's the sauce that the Vietnamese put on everything yeah and it's delicious it- sometimes it's a little funky sometimes it's a funky monkey you're not sure what it is but yeah. it's nook mam and so you come to their aid with that sir I think they're putting nook mam on their breath as the enemy will smell them coming
0: and think they are friendlies yes <laughs> I gave him some excuse not to be so martial. You know? Creative thinking, Sergeant. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> okay,
2: so moving forward from there, you more firefight. How'd that go for the rest of the day then? Did you get the trigger
0: to the ambush? Uh, no. Uh, okay, We're, the enemy is now being pushed at me, and they're really, really close. Um, I can hear the, the, the brush and stuff as because they, they're yelling and shooting and fighting, yeah. and I, I can tell by <clears throat> the, the battle is moving. They're still up on the road, though, and I could tell that the, the return fire is getting closer and closer to me, and finally it stops, and they get, they're get they starting to get to where I'm just about ready to blow what's left of my claymores, right. get my people going, and all of a sudden I hear this yelling, uh, shouting and yelling, and, it, and it's like my people would never do that. They they wouldn't blow an ambush. right? You know. And I hear this yelling, and I turn to my side, and there's two Vietnamese officers that I never saw before and, uh um, South Vietnamese South Vietnamese yeah and Not they're North. on the yeah they're on the radio and they're screaming into the radio and um Ooh. they're doing one of three things they're either shouting so that the N- N- NVA wouldn't hear it and go somewhere else so they wouldn't have to be in a fight or they were they were collaborating with them and giving them warning right uh, or they were ignorant one of those three the only thing or things, a combination of two and three yeah <laughs> and so I I, I went oh. shh, I went shh, shh. You know, and yeah. I, I'm trying to get him to be quiet without me shouting. You know, and he said, shh, "Shh, and they look up like I'm an like ant dinky or, down. yeah, like yeah. Or, who's this guy? And I went, "Shh,", shh and they still wouldn't would start yelling. So I started throwing sticks at him and I threw rocks at him. You know, and, and, and uh, <laughs> they looked at me like they were irritated. And so I ran over there and I grabbed his radio and I threw it over the embankment. And I knew that it, when my back was turned, they probably would shoot me. Yeah. And so I pointed at one of my people and I says, you know, I pointed at my eyes and and, and looked at them and, and watched them, you know. And uh, I went back to my place where I could watch my people and sure enough, the, the, the people that were being driven to me were going the other way. They blew the ambush. Well, and then I looked back and I got this circle of people. My little Montagnards are protecting me. They got a circle all around me with the guns out and right Protecting me from the South Vietnamese.
2: And so as this progressed, that little incident, at uh, some point you're saying, Zen Loi, I'm sorry about that so and soon. but for you go a few hundred more yards, and then you talk to your little people yeah. and you ask them, what are they saying? And the voice said, vC say killed Americans to kill mountain yards. Yeah. So those guys, even though we're South Vietnamese, so how did they get in there in the first place? Was it some yeah. kind of a resupply? Yeah,
0: when we when we um overran the, the uh village, we had a couple of wounded we needed to get out. Right. And um and then uh, it was a good chance for me to get the guns and all that s- stuff that we captured out. And I think what happened was is that uh they came in on that chopper. And I think uh, when that when the captain saw those two Vietnamese, he he dumped them on me. And he didn't tell me, he just didn't want him with him, and he dumped them on me. Whoa, and uh, uh, there they were set up, and I never even saw them until they started shouting in the radio. <laughs> yeah, and then now uh, before, as you were reading there, uh, the captain got engaged again with more fighting up there, and uh, he called on the radio. He says, Uh, I, I, I was handsome, but I, I don't remember yeah. my call sign. But he's basically a third platoon, third platoon, and and I I gave my call sign. It was Swede. Uh, um, I said, Swede, and and he says, get up here. Help us. We need help. And uh, he was the two companies or or two uh, platoons were being overrun. And so on the way, I said, well, it took them two hours to get to where they were. And so I gathered up all my people. I pulled in my outposts, and we we didn't run it, but we went just about Post-taste. that fast. Oh, yeah. no kidding. And my people were so exhausted when we got up to where the road was. Um, it, uh, they could hardly talk. They were puking. They were tired. Really? They hardly lift their feet. It took me 15 minutes to get there. It took them two hours. So. Right. And when I got up there, I was under fire. I got rockets and um, mortars coming on me. And it was boom, boom, boom all around me. Yeah, they're and I yelled their act at, together now. Yeah, and I yelled at the, the sergeant who was in charge of the mortars. Was, his name was his code name was Spanky, and I, I said, <laughs> "Spanky, the Swede," you know, and, yeah. and he come across. I said, y- "Your your mortars are right on top of me." I said, uh, "Stop," and he says, "We're not firing anything," and so we were being fired by the NVA, but my people were so tired, and this is kind of an unthinkable thing, perhaps, but um, I gave them ten minute break and we just sat there under under the the mortars and i said they're, they're worthless they can't even walk they're so tired yeah and um i gave them a break and, and as as soon as i decided they were on target and not around me you know because they were looking they weren't exactly sure and as soon as they got us zeroed in i was going to take off but gave them a 10 minute break under mortar fire and we sat on the highway and they puked and they had their cramps and all that stuff and Finally, we uh, I gave him the 10 minutes. I said, let's go. And, and uh, uh, we joined the company at that point. And, and then um, Roche, Captain Roche, was just amazed that we had got there so quick. He thought it would be another wow. hour and a half anyway. No kidding.
2: Yeah. So that's a key point. You are able to turn that battle around and it that did. part of it. It did. It turned it around. One of your 17 contacts with the yeah. enemy on that mission. Yeah.
0: So, um, yeah. And then... Uh, he decides we're going to um, assault. They're 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 down the hill actually, and they're salting upward. And um, what the captain decided was a kind of a good idea. <clears throat> All three of our platoons would get together and we do one minute of solid fire, full automatic, and everything we had mortars, everything for one solid minute. And when the one minute ended, then I was go- my platoon was going to assault, and we did that. And um, coordinating was the first thing you went to start, yeah. make sure everybody knew we were on. So they weren't still shooting when I'm down below, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one minute was over. I assaulted with my people, and uh, we we took out some more NVA in that charge. But there were dead people all over the place. And and the interesting thing was that there would be mortar tubes and machine guns empty of people. They would take off and leave them, or they would be slumped over on top of them. So they took off on a run, and um, uh, we won at that point. Wow. I told the captain when he when he finally linked up and he just stayed up on the road. I said we have lots of weapons, uh, lots of enemy killed. We need to uh, get the weapons because they were valuable, cruisered weapons and stuff. And he says, uh, Sergeant Hanson, bring them up here. And I, and I said, there's no way we could chase them <clears throat> <clears throat> because right. they threw away all their weapons, their rucksacks, the rifles. They're just running, you know, with just clothes on, and I, there's no way we could catch them. You know, And so I and when I told him that, and he said, bring up all the gear, and uh, that's what we did. Well then, at some point, this all settles down, and you
2: see the two Vietnamese officers who you threw rocks at, and who were telling the, them th- yeah. to kill Americans and to kill the Montagnards, they're up there talking, and you're getting ready to go address them, or at least talk to Roach, and then this is a bitter side of this politics. We always talk it's, about politics, but here in your book, you described how the two lieutenants were there, and Sergeant Roberts
0: comes up and puts his hand on your yeah. shoulder
2: and says, Let me talk to you about this. Yeah,
0: because he could see I was a bantam rooster. I was ready to go oh, and yeah. nail him. And I could, they, those two lieutenants were talking to the captain, pointing at me and looking at me. You knew they were ticked off at this guy who threw the radio <laughs> over the embankment and didn't say, Sir, you know. Indeed. And so <laughs> Roberts gave me some, the reality check there.
2: Yeah, but that reality check, this is the thing. The way you write it, and again, going back to the book, he goes, listen to me. I'm going to give it to you straight. Those two lieutenants, the South Vietnamese who were on the radio yelling out loud to kill Americans and to kill the VC, we didn't talk about that. I'm sure they didn't tell that to the Captain Roach. Mm-hmm. He says, the two lieutenants could get you transferred from CCC. It is called Vietnamization. Remember, it is the government's plan that the Vietnamese take over the war. When we get back to camp, those two officers will take credit for this whole operation. The record will show their great courage and leadership it took to destroy this place. And our people, including our captain, will affirm that this is so. I looked at Roberts, then at the Vietnamese, then back to Roberts. He was right. If the mission was a Vietnamization, then the report must affirm that that it was working. America was accomplishing its own mission. It galled me. Time for me to grow up on this one,
0: I thought. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the other thing that Roberts had mentioned to me, too, was that he says in the morning there will be a, re- a letter from Officer Han- or Sergeant Hansen indicating their great courage and all that stuff. And, and he says, <laughs> and you'll sign it. He says, you don't have to write it. We'll do that for you or they'll do that for you, and you'll sign it. And, oh. and, and th- those Vietnamese, of course, wouldn't diminish your reputation because that would diminish this great letter that I wrote and didn't write, really. Wow. Yeah, and that's Vietnamization. And, and uh, the last year of the war, we, uh, we had to reflect the, that they were able to take over the war so that Americans could leave it. Good
2: God. And then uh, when that point in time came... The men who were false heroes proved they weren't, mm-hmm. and that's part of that that class, particularly in that area. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> getting down to near the end, um, you were talking about at the end of your third tour of duty. Mm-hmm. So, what was your third tour? Because I third, think you said you just this extend, overlapped so the second to it. and the third. They yeah. overlapped. Yeah. Okay. And so now it gets to that point in time that everybody faces and um, you're now getting ready to leave camp mm-hmm. and um, again this whole uh, relationship between you and your, and your little people and then also um, I'm, I want to get to that one point where um, now you were mentally going through what was going to happen here and how you had to leave them behind and how that impacted you and um in your book <clears throat> you were talking to uh, there was a you were talking to a Mrs. Olson yeah, near the end. The last chapter. Yes, yeah. yeah, sir. I'll that last chapter now and yeah. and Mrs. Olson was from back in Minnesota days?
0: Yeah, um uh it would be Minnesota, yeah. Yeah. And but, but this calling, thought the came stu- to mind and yes.
2: Yes, and so you're thinking about, you're talking to her, and what
0: she said, what, what was it that she said that, that hit you so hard? This thing about your life isn't worth, uh, what you contribute to life, to include the sacrifice our people made in the war and so on. Right. Nobody's going to even know that we did it. You know, um, and, and of course, the illustration that she gives is pretty significant, you know. Um She's in a hospital bed I don't know if that's what you wanted to read, but she's in a, a nursing home bed and um, she does she her mind goes back and forth but she's looking at me as I'm visiting her yeah and she says you, you know what you don't know anything about death and, and life she says and I said, yeah, yes I do I mean, certainly we certainly we do and uh, she says, you know what your life is and she says, you go outside to that pump. You know, that she's thinking a ham pup in her memory yeah and you pump this the cup. water pump yeah water pump she says uh, you go out there and you pump this cup full of water and she says then you put your finger in that cup he says that that cup of water is the world and all the people around you and so forth he says the finger is you and he says you pull that finger out and nobody knows you were ever there whoa yes, yes. And, and um so significant, but as a Christian, thinking of a, a, a life after, and as you and I and the rest of us in Special Forces, the sacrifices we made for our posterity and, and, and so forth, um, uh, we know it was a sacrifice, and, and we did have something that's lasting that we left behind Although so many of our special forces guys never got the recognition, the heroism, uh, uh, all the rest.
2: Yeah, because we couldn't talk about it for twenty years. We all signed yeah. the uh, NDAs. Yeah.
0: yeah, but but in our minds, we want to think that when our life is over, we left something that was lasting and worthwhile.
2: Right, and you had a really a couple of excellent paragraphs in your last chapter as you, you wrapped up the book, and you were thinking about Mrs. Olson, and you're thinking about what she said. And your response to yourself was, what we did know or what we did was known to God if no human being ever took notice. I know several solic heroes who, without any fanfare, returned to their hometown and quietly raised families. They found work as janitors in the local school and pushed a a dust mop along the halls, cleaned slop off dining tables, and after hours set up chairs around the stage for school functions. The lights never shined on them. They never took a bow. No newspaper newspaper ever mentioned their names. They would retire, grow old, and die, their finger finally leaving the tin cup as well. And only then when the town read the obituary would they discover the sacrifice and heroism of the quiet janitor they quietly noticed as he swept the hall. Some of our guys needed the quiet after our war, and they found a spot along a river in a remote place in Alaska, or the Olympic Forest, or on an island in northern Minnesota. They built a cabin on a dog named Shep, and were the uncle the family knew little about. Some of ours were accomplished, One buck sergeant who ran recon became a four star general. One of us was the owner of Walmart, John Walton. Others were elected to office. Some were accomplished in other ways. I just think that's a a fitting statement Mm -hmm. about a lot of our guys that were soldiers, went to war, and came back and returned quietly to life without any fanfare.
0: Right, I started the book with a biographical note that kind of ties exactly what you just said together and those those anecdotes. But when I was a young boy and my next-door neighbor, old people, uh, Osber and Ada Pettis, lived in a tiny little uh, log cabin, uh, tiny, uh, four small rooms. And um, one day, and I was still a little boy, um, a lady came to their house. And she was obviously from the big city, from Minneapolis. And she came in there and her hair was, um, dyed blonde and it was, uh, frizzled like a corn husk, thick, uh, dry spindly and frizzled on the end. And she was smoking steadily and her knuckles were just dark brown. And, and she came in there and she had a big white belt and, uh, she came in and she had every look of affected sophistication. And, um, uh, her mother who that's that's who whose child it was that just came in from the big city uh her mother says that's a beautiful belt and she tells her mom yeah um i made that myself she says i collect gum wrappers the silver part of gum wrappers and she says i i I, you can fold them a certain way and fold them together and you can make belts and purses and things and uh, she says, "I made this belt out of gum wrappers that I collected." Well, at that time, you know, I I, I left the house because I could sense this was a personal, private moment. Yeah. Went home, and my dad says, "Your uncle Lawrence is here." And um, he had there were seven brothers in that family, and Uncle Lawrence was wounded twice in the Korean War and had just gotten out of the hospital. And he came into the room, and and, and my dad says he brought you a present. And uh, he was skinny, Um, he's six-foot, blonde hair, and and he just looked frail, tired, you know, just out of hospital, and he didn't have much money, and I expected Cracker Jacks or something. And he had it behind his back, and he handed it to me, and it was, a, 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 I think, kind of like a book. It was a notebook, and it was red and black, and on the the front, there was an Indian picture, and the caption on the bottom was, Little Chief Notebook and he gave that to me and i opened it up and i turned the pages and they're all blank pages just blank pages with lines on them and my uncle says you you're smart you can you can put things in there you can put your art he says you can put your wise thoughts and and uh, uh, you could write a book you can put these things in here and at first i didn't know what to do with big chief notebook yeah but I, I, as I looked at the big chief notebook, all of a sudden I realized what a tremendous compliment he gave me. And I put the notebook on my bookshelf at, in my bedroom and stuff. And I said, I'm not going to put anything trite or banal in that notebook. It's going to be only things that are worthwhile and lasting. And then as la- I laid in, in bed at night and it was raining and all that stuff. And I laid in, in bed at night and I thought of the, the white belt and the little chief notebook. And I said, I am never going to be a person that choose going collects chewing gum wrappers to fold into a belt. I'm going to be the kind of a person that is going to have worthwhile things to write in a little chief notebook of my life. And that's what all of us SF guys did. We did something worthwhile. It deserves to be in a special notebook and, and held for posterity. For sure. Him. And then uh, maybe in that
2: notebook, um, one of these little, this is such a fascinating sidebar again involving you and Captain Roach who sometimes you would pick up the mail mm-hmm. and drop off the mail and it's just got to turn to this to turn you loose on this but yeah. uh, <laughs> he said uh, so you picked up the mail and so one of the afternoon you picked up the mail and you you walking back towards the hooch to give it to Captain Roach or where it would be dropped off if he would allow you to talk to him mm-hmm. um, and it was a it was written with a German hand, like my grandmother's Hecker's. Without trying to do so, I discovered I held a handwritten letter from Otto Scorzini to Captain Roach. It was the first of several I would bring. I knew the name. Scorzini was perhaps the most famous commando of the Second World War. Some said the most famous commando who ever lived. During the war, newspapers said he was the most dangerous man in Europe. Accounts referred to him as the Third Reich's Scarlet Pimpernel. Am I saying that right? Scarlet Pimpernel, yeah. Okay, thank you. And he was the head of Germany's special forces. Gorzini considered his specialty to be commando raids and guerrilla warfare. And just like uh, our American special Green Berets, I was convinced that the German legend was the paradigm of my captain and that he was mentored by him. So talk to us a little bit. You had studied Corzini yourself, as we all had, me in his book.
0: I read his book, you read his book. Uh, Scorzini was, (laughs) like I said, the paradigm, uh, or or paradigm, not paragon, because it wasn't his pristine character, he's a paragon. (laughs) Um, But uh, Scorzini was uh, incredible. He's he's Hitler's right hand man. Often you see him next to uh, Hitler, in a parade or something like that. He's the um, he's the one who sprung Mussolini when the Allies captured him and had him in that impregnable fortress.
2: On top of a mountain.
0: Yes, and, and he's the one who came in on gliders and stuff, it sprung him and got him out in a, a little piper cupboard or something like yeah. that. Uh, uh, he's the one who, uh, he was so feared that when Eisenhower... Uh, Churchill and Stalin got together for one of the meetings, the word came out that Scorzini is in the area, and they spread and and, and just uh, got rid of that meeting. Uh, And and there was another time where he shot Churchill and killed him, but it turned out it was his double. Churchill's double. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one in Normandy that had a couple hundred of his paratroopers parachuted in behind the lines and uh, put in false information, turned the signs around, uh, uh, dressed up in American uniforms. And that was and in the movie Patton,
2: too. Yeah. They yeah. saw those They saw those guys that were dressed like that. Yeah. And that's the way they operated to slowly advance down. Yeah.
0: He parachuted into Holland. I didn't realize
2: there was Scorzini's people.
0: Yeah. He's parachuted wow. into Holland. Uh, he got the Knights Cross and two Iron Crosses. Uh, he was in, in uh, um, Russia fighting against the, the Russians until he got severely wounded. After the war, he was the personal bodyguard for Eva Peron in South America. Um, he is the one who is credited with starting Odessa, the Odessa file, right. who got the uh, Germans out of Germany and into South America. Um, one time he was in Spain— and uh, the Mossad, the, the Israelis sent some Mossad agents. And as soon as he saw them and figured out who they were, he thought they were there to, to assassinate him. him. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, oh, no, no, we're not here to assassinate you. We want to hire you. He says, well, I don't need money, but I'll tell you what, if you get, um, uh, what's his name, uh, to get the most wanted uh, list? Um, Simon, Wies- Simon Wiesenthal. Simon Wiesenthal. Yeah. He says, if who was you,
2: a big hunter. Of the uh, Nazis the after Nazi World War after. II. he tracked them all over the world. Yeah, tracked them down and brought many to justice. Didn't get them all.
0: Yeah, but well, he t- he told them if you can get get him to get my name off his list, I'll take care of those Russian or those uh, Egyptian sh- scientists who are trying to make the bombs to kill Israel. And so within a month, all the uh, Egyptian scientists were killed. And it, and he, as I said, at the end of the war, <laughs> he he escaped out of a jail. And they actually think that it was a OSS or the CIA later on who sprung them. And they actually hired him to teach Americans, such as Green Berets, world warfare. And one of those students is presumed to be my captain, captain Mr. Roach. So when I'm out in the field, <laughs> I'm listening to Otto Scorzini and what he would be doing. And the, the, the bravado that was out there was incredible. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
2: And so... Um, so when we close this part of the book here, um, what what was the fate of Captain Roach in terms of his service and country?
0: Yeah, within a month he was killed. He uh, And actually it wasn't in, in actual combat. He went over a road mine and up in your neck of the woods in CCN's area, Monkey Mountain and so forth. Oh, sure. And they went over a, a, his Jeep went over a, a road mine. Uh, uh, he was killed in a, in his Jeep. Yeah.
2: My God, I'll say the same. So that's... So after your service, you get out of mm-hmm. the Army. or you st- uh, How'd that work? This I don't want to be wrong about this. When you got out, you're also in the Reserves for a bit. Mm-hmm. But then you also went to Alaska where you got involved right. in law enforcement because there's a part of your history here that nobody's known about that I want to mm-hmm. get into when you're in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And then we can go to your carving and mm-hmm. how your spare yeah. time, you did some authors, writing a couple of other books, which, by the way, while we're speaking about other books... Before we have uh, Born Twice, uh, we have The Last White Seal Hunter. We have a book on poetry that, how do you say, haiku? Haiku. Flowers in the Grass, poetry.
0: Yeah, specialized poetry, yeah.
2: Indeed. And then The Great Catch, Alaskan Short Stories by a man who lives there and sustains his life and is able to live
0: up there. And, and endorsed by a guy named Tilt-Meyer. Is that right? Yeah. You forgot. <laughs> no, I didn't forget. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. so this is, these are three books prior to this book.
2: So when you get done with CCC, what's next?
0: Okay. Joined the 12th Special Forces Group where I stayed in there until Clinton disbanded us. Right. Um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, whether I was going to go back in the service or get out, but... Um, I thought, in the meantime, I'm going to, uh, uh, no matter what I did, whether it would be go be a farmer or whatever it was, I could always use flying. So I signed up under GI Bill for the ATP, the airline transport, and went to California and uh, was roommate with Mike Buckland, and we both took um, flight training. you know We flew gliders and did aerobatics and uh, worked toward our licenses.
2: And also, this is the same Mike Buckland, just so we yeah. remind our, our viewers that you all went through, uh, was a basic advanced infantry, special yeah. forces training, wind up together, both yeah. as intel officers, uh, yeah. non-commissioned officers and COs. Yeah,
0: and he and I were the only survivors out of our group that went over there, and between the two of us living, we had four Purple Hearts. Well,
2: wow. And then so. that group, when you left, was how many? 30? Thirty-seven. Thirty-seven, and you two were the last two who were alive to talk right. about it. Yeah. Okay, just to have a little bit of a flavor here.
0: Yeah. So anyway, long and short, I um, met my wife. I, I, Kathy? Yeah, Kathy. Uh, kind of a long story. You know, when my roommate crashed, you know, she came down to visit him in the hospital. And six days later, I proposed. I had no idea I was going to do it. But we just <laughs> decided we didn't want to live in the cities and right. uh, uh, moved and, to Alaska. And you're
2: aware. Okay, all right. You moved to Alaska. Yeah.
0: And uh, I taught martial arts in the college. And uh, all the cops. And the state troopers were my students. And it was the academy for the uh, teaching cops and and state troopers and so forth. And uh, so they were all my students. And um, there got to be an opening in the police department. They said, You got to be a cop, you know. So I took the test and virtually maxed it. And And where in Alaska was this? This is Sitka, and that's where the school is for teaching cops. And that's an island? (laughs) Yeah, Southeast Alaska, an island about 2,000 square miles. I never think yeah. of the east side of Alaska. Yeah, southeast. I think about west. Yeah. yeah. But east. In the southeast, it's actually yeah. a panhandle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. up something today. Yeah. So I um, well, it wound up um, being a cop, you know, went to the academy, and there were four categories uh, uh, academics, shooting, driving. Uh, there's one more in there. But anyway, I got Intel. number um, no, I can't remember now, okay. but there were four, yeah. Um, and I got first in all four, it's never been done before, really, yeah. And um, so anyway, I, I had a good career ahead, and yeah, the one of my problems was I uh, when they swore me to uphold the law, I didn't understand they were joking because I arrested people, and that's not appreciated, you know. <laughs> but we wound up with um. <laughs> And I don't know how far you want to go into the fifth column. Well, we definitely
2: got to talk about the fifth column because it impacted you. And you're one of the few Green Berets I know who went into police work and was targeted and had assassins come after you in your house in Alaska on a remote island, southeast Alaska. Yeah. So we could go into that. We may not want to name the terrorist group per se because they're still there.
0: Yes. May yes. have
2: different names, like oh, all good terrorist group. They change yeah. their clothing to fool the American public, yeah. to think they're good people when they're not.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I, I it was my fifth year as a policeman, and uh, there was a, a fifth group, a, a, a fifth fifth column, and column, uh, not fifth group. Yes, a fifth column. Um, when you have someone trying to infiltrate or take over a country or a base or anything, it would be. Oftentimes, you're surrounded by four sides. A fifth column is, is that which comes up inside of your group. Like termites
2: in a tree that ruin Exactly.
0: And, and and they come up on the inside, and they eat you up, and they can actually topple you from the inside. And their danger is even worse than that which is attacking you on the outside. And, uh, There's a, part, a lot of what we're seeing today in America. Absolutely. In fact, the, the word progressive Democrat, yes. uh, which is actually socialist, they're, they're socialist. Of course. And they want to change the country to socialism and communism, well, rather than attack from the outside, they they work from the inside, and that 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 word means that they are going to do it from other than than violent means. They're going to do it politically and so forth, and so it's a, in effect, it's a fifth column that's eating away at the United States and destroying our core values and all of that. Um, the fifth column that was in Alaska is like during Vietnam and after. Um, the the communists had various fifth columns in the United States as well as place else. We would do the same. It would be wonderful you have someone inside the enemy camp who could make it easier for you sure. when you attacked. You know? But one that they had in Alaska was insidious and smart in a way. We have 300 villages and towns, and uh, so many towns, a town of 200, 300, 400, can't have a high school and so forth. They just couldn't do it so we had regional schools we had 5 of them spread across the state and there were regional high schools and so forth well for the entire state yeah just 5 uh-huh. in, in specific places like yeah, yeah. sitka was one it had anchorage and maybe dillingham or something like that yeah. you know well uh since they were all grouped in 5 places it would be easy for them to indoctrinate, uh, teach them communist tactics, get them to hate the white man or whatever it would be. Right. So th- they had these five locations and various communist indoctrinated people could teach them, you know, and, and get them to go against the United States. And um, I would be uh, wanting to interview a child, a student for something. And I would go into a room and all the rooms would have posters, uh, um, uh, Two foot by three and a half feet. You know, big posters. Yeah. And the native colors were black and red, and they had have these posters all along the walls, and and you you'd recognize the people. It would be Cochise, Geronimo, Red Cloud, Chief Joseph, and, and then the next one it would be Mao Zedong, Che Guevara, uh, uh, Stalin. Whoa! And and, and the, the transition was so obvious. And these kids were being taught that the people to identify with were communists well the the lady who had that headed that up and i won't say her name or right. anything yeah. uh, one day her common-law husband they never got married decided he was going to kill as many people as he could especially many white people we had one road going to the mill site where everybody worked and it was along the uh, ocean and it was a real windy road and he parked his car there and every time a car went up to him he would walk into the highway with his gun out, pointed at the driver of the car, and then he would stop the car, put his hand out and stop the car. And as soon as the car would stop, he would motion with his hand for them to get out of the car. And it was very, very clear he was gonna execute these people. And uh, in all eight of these cars, they could just feel what was gonna happen. And they would gun the car and take off down the highway and this guy would shoot at them. And then I was the shift supervisor and I got we got a call uh, I had made an arrest and I was doing a report in the station. We got a call of a guy in a rust colored pickup and camper who was shooting at people and, and uh, they needed help. He was there now and stopping cars. So I went as fast as the car would go. As a shift supervisor, my car was maroon in color, it didn't have the lights on top. You'd have to All marked. lift them. Yeah, I had to put the, the, the lights the bubble on top. The bulb machine on top. Yeah. And so I went as fast as they could go. And when I was approaching him, as fast as I could drive, and I'm talking on the radio because the description, in my mind was an old beat-up rusty car, a uh, truck. You know? Yeah. Uh, but the car I saw was a shiny maroon-colored pickup, rust-colored, and all of a sudden, I'm calling on the radio for a confirmation. This guy steps out of the car, tries to stop me, starts to shoot at me, got a couple shots on, and I stopped my car I'm left-handed, so I threw my door open with my elbow and I pointed the gun at him. He's 76 feet away, according to the police report, so 25 yards. And um, I yell at him to drop it, and he starts to shoot some more, and I shoot, and and he goes straight down. And um, he goes down uh, on his belly. I can't see the gun anymore. Both of his hands are underneath him. I don't see any blood. And so my first thought is this guy's faking. So uh, the other cop comes barreling down the highway like a Hollywood movie as fast as he can go and slams on the brakes and the car skidding sideways. He barrels out with his shotgun. I tell him what happened, you know, and, and I can't see the gun. I'm concerned he's faking. So with him holding the shotgun and the ambulance on the way, I wait until the ambulance is there and then we roll him over. Um, he's definitely shot twice uh, in the chest, and we got him off to the station. Uh, within hours, within three hours, um, I have hit men from south, uh, North Dakota here to kill me. Three hours? Three hours, on, a, on it must have been a private jet or something because they're in town. And uh, the word in the community is that this poor man was watching the sunrise, and the cops went up and shot him through the window. That's the first word they got out. In spite of all the, the witnesses and so forth, so anyway, long and short is that he, he he's dead. He died in the, yeah. in the hospital. and All this stuff. Um, it turns out the person I shot and, and so forth, the, his sister, the common law wife, who's heading up the uh, um, communist thing with indoctrinating kids, is the. And I won't men- mention the place, but he is he is the head of an uprising in the D- Dakotas he's a, he's a wow. very famous man yeah uh, he's, he's wealthy and he's an actor and he's very very highly regarded he sends his people out to kill me and um anyway long and short is uh they come to town and all this stuff and all of a sudden they re- uh, their ex- someone explains to them the guy who did it and that you are supposed to kill was this green beret guy and and um so long and short was is they kind of chicken out. Uh, right. And they head off on the plane. They go up toward Anchorage. One of the three gets killed in Anchorage. But they, they, for the next year, they have hits on me. They're going to uh, hire people to kill me and all that.
2: And what were you doing? Because at this point, you like you had to do, uh, like you had your mirror underneath the car. Every time you got yep. into it, you left the doors open so yep. if the car explodes with a bomb. A lot of the energy will go out and stay, stay instead of staying in the car and killing you. Yeah, and you're living with this, and by this point, you and Kathy are married. You've got a child. Yep. yep. And at one point, uh, Kathy was somewhere at a meeting. Yep. And you're in your house with your baby, mm-hmm.
0: and you're walking across the living room. So please take it from yeah. there. She she was. Um she used to help with with police scenarios to, to help train the the cops you know pretending she's the battered wife or something, right, so she's invited right. for the graduation for the cops and the troopers. There's thirty some of them across the street from me you know across the lawn and the street, and they're in a graduation ceremony about a hundred yards away and she's in there because she's honored because she helped with her training sure. I'm walking past the window. I've got my baby in my arms, and as I'm walking across the window, my dog barked. And I turned to the side to see what the dog was barking at, and the bullet went over my shoulder where my head would be. It went over my shoulder, missed my baby, and and it hit a a stained glass seashell that I had in the other window. So when, when I turned, the stained glass was about where my head would be. The guy, when he shot, thought that stained glass seashell was my head the boat went through the stained glass seashell and i would have run him down i would have, I, if i didn't have the baby i would have just bolted out the door and i would have run that guy down and i would have ended him you yeah know, right there like, yeah he would he would have been explained to god what he was doing and uh but i had the baby so all i could do was uh crawl across the, the uh, kitchen to the phone and all i said was um uh I uh, Dale 911, and I says, this is Dale. I just had a hit made on me. They missed me. But I said, I'm the graduation ceremony across the street is about to get out, and my wife is about to walk right through that ambush site. I says, can you let her know? And uh, so they sent a cop, a sergeant, over there. He walks down the aisle to whisper to my wife that don't go home that way. Um, my, uh, they just shot at Dale. And, um, so she, um, uh, the, the whole auditorium just happened to notice this guy going, it was that uh, one of those moments of uh, time where everything yeah, stopped. Yeah. that serendipitous moment, you know, yes. when, when just as he whispers, they just shot at Dale across the street when, uh, it happened to get quiet and all the way he whispered, the entire auditorium heard it. And about 70 cops ran out of that building <laughs> through the woods after this guy as he took off on a full run, you know. And, yeah. and that was the first of many times they tried to shoot uh, or kill me or do a hit on me and so forth. How uh, many other times were you actually shot at
2: by this element?
0: Um, I don't know. I, it could have been different count. because there were um, hits, you know, yes. contracts. Sure, yeah. You know, and uh, most of them fizzled. Uh, most of them would be, uh, they would be shoot from too far away. You know, where all they had to do is just walk up to me. They could have just done it. Yeah, uh, you can't be watching every second. You know. On
2: the other hand, you may have been preceded by your notoriety as a Green Beret, and they said,
0: the, eh, "We're not going to mess with this guy too close. Let's take him out far away." Exactly, and and that's the biggest thing is uh, they were a little bit leery of the target, and the other thing is as I acted at ease all the time. I didn't like act afraid. I didn't take any right. unique things. And so I, they were hitting a target that was totally confident in himself. Sure. And uh, it, it kind of unnerved him and stopped him. But it was dangerous for a long time. Um, I would get invited to go snowmobiling <laughs> from a guy I hardly <laughs> knew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably, really. <laughs> you know, Indeed.
2: Well, also, there's a classic moment here. Apparently, it was... Was this incident or another incident where you shot somebody with two rounds? This guy, guy, yeah. This uh, is this this is that case. It's that case. Okay, Um, but
0: then you got to tell our listeners what your wife Kathy's. My wife is so good. Uh, She's. We're both Christian. We don't get afraid that much. And um, (laughs) it was like seven in the morning when the gunfight happened. Right, and he's down. As soon as I get to the station, which takes you an hour somebody, or two. yes. Yeah. So I, um, I go to the station, and I thought, before the word gets out, and my wife hears it on a radio or something, you know, I need to call her and tell her what happened. And so I, I called the house, and I said, Kath, I, I don't want you to worry. I says, but last night I had to kill somebody. And she had heard already. And she says, I just got one question how come it took you two shots? You know, and, and that's that's a wife.
2: That's a wife that stands by her man.
0: Absolutely. you And,
2: know. and even the worst conditions is critical of using extra ammo. We should have had one. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, she was kind of criticizing, I might have missed once. You know? Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: well, <clears throat> I think we're close to that point for uh, our second interview here. Um, any final notes? And before we... Uh, Ask that question before you get your answer. Again, we're here for uh, SolidCast 33 and 34 off of this book, an excellent book, Born Again by Dale Hansen. He also has written The Great Catch. Haiku, a book of poetry endorsed by a fellow Green Beret. (laughs) (laughs) And The Last White Seal Hunter. I haven't had a chance to read these yet, but now that they're so close by, and my daughter recommends them highly, of course. But So we're at that point, sir. For any last thoughts or anything we should have covered or something you'd like to say besides that you married up and had a classy woman, three children. Yeah. Oh, uh, talk a little bit about your carving.
0: Oh. um, Last but not least. Yeah. um, When people were shooting at me and, and all that stuff, people were also afraid to hire me for a job. (laughs) <laughs> a police department said I was politically hot, should look for work, and people were afraid to hire me, thinking their businesses would be sabotaged. So anyway, long and short was is I, I had done some carving, and um, it's almost like the hand of God was in it. Um, uh, I was carving a soapstone piece, and um, uh, one of the great painters of Alaska, Keith Greva, came by, and um, he stopped by my house, and he said, That's worth about $1,200. You know, and I never thought of putting a, a, a value on what anything. What kind of I carving did. was it? You it was got... a seal. I was carving for my wife out of soapstone. You oh, know, okay. and, and he said it's worth a lot of money. Well, later on in the week, I was carving a, a whale out of ivory. Don't remember where I got the ivory, but I was carving it with yeah. crude tools. Didn't even have a base for it yet. And he said, that's worth a lot of money. And he came by, you know, toward the end. And he says, let me take that. And he went down uh, downtown. He came back in an hour Gave me a check for two hundred dollars. Said a store had already bought it, and then he called me up on the phone that night to say that the store had already sold it for two or uh, for four hundred dollars. And then uh, I thought, man, this is really weird. I never thought anyone would value what I did. And then a third thing happened that week: is that the best carver in Alaska stopped by my house. I knew who he was. I knew his name. Never met him though. And he had one of those huge lard cans, those old fashioned square lard cans full of scraps of ivory. And he says, my name is Jim Fleshman. He says, uh, uh, I, I, I'm coming over here and I want you to pick out what you want out of uh, this ivory. And so I, I, I picked out what I dared to carve that would be labor intensive rather than material. And so I, I picked everything I dared. He says, well, you're gonna need some accents and this and that too. And then uh, um, he, when he figured I had everything I wanted, he took his big arm and he just took what I didn't want and he put it back in the, his bucket and started heading for my door. I says, how much do I owe you for this? And he, he looked at me, he says, nothing. God told me to bring it over here. Really? Yes. And, and so I, I told my wife, as with three things like that in one week, I said, there's something to this. <laughs> and I, I told my wife, I says, but I, I'm not going to be a peddler. I says, if I'm gonna do this and nobody's gonna hire me and all this, I'm gonna give it an honest shot. And I says, I'm gonna faithfully carve every day. And I carved till one, two, three in the morning, every single day. And I said, when spring gets here, I'm gonna have an inventory. And I did, I carved all winter long. And uh, when spring came, I uh, invited all the store owners that had a tourist type thing over to my house. It's at 10 o'clock at noon. There wasn't a single carving left on the table and i really or- and I, yeah and i had orders for 450 more carvings whoa and it was like that for more than the next 20 years so you literally yeah. carved out a new career yeah uh literally uh and um Sorry. so for at least 40 years i've been carving i've done uh carvings and then i've got about 250 300 editions of bronze and silver and pewter and all the rest that I that I do, too. So in the meantime, uh, that's how we've supported ourselves, um, carving and, and uh, writing books for Tilt-Meyer.
2: Indeed. And <laughs> uh, um, you could literally say that uh, you've been, uh, aside from carving out a career in your life, you, <laughs> you're the epitome of the Special Forces soldier who, in Alaska, where you want to be, people won't hire you, yeah. And you had a new career in carving. It's just and the beautiful
0: amazing. thing about that was this, as a soldier or as a policeman or something else, you really have no control of the end, how it's going to turn out. Oh, yeah. But when I pick a, up a piece of ivory or stone or wood or whatever, I'm in charge and I determine how it's going to end. And there's something gratifying, satisfying with saying that, you know, there's something here I can control. Like when you finish the book and you've gone over it 10, 12 times, and it's edited and all stuff, and you just say, I'm satisfied with this book. It says what I wanted to say. Uh, that's nice, because you control the end of it. you know. And oh, There's a, um, Plato, Aristotle's teacher. Indeed. He said something. We, we, can a stu- a we can forgive a child who's afraid of the dark. We forgive a child who's afraid of the dark, but it, how awful it is when you see an adult who's afraid of the light Ooh, yeah and so much so many of us uh, today we look at the world around us and all this kind of a thing and, and we're we terrified when we ought to be in charge of it and, and and do our part to make things work and happen have faith yeah exactly
2: indeed well any other last thoughts sir before we wrap it up here officially well in that case um we wanna thank uh, Jocko Willing Productions for making this possible in conjunction with Saw Chronicles and for Jocko's team, Echo Charles. And today we've been joined by Tech Tom, our top secret agent here to help make these productions <laughs> come to you. And then we also, uh, we wanna thank the men and women who have served our country in the years past and men like Dale Hansen, who have served our country with great valor. And we also remember and salute the men and the women of our military, the border patrol, law enforcement, first responders, EMT, and these days our law enforcement, in particular, and border patrol on the southern and northern borders that are just under incredible pressure. Um, We thank all of them. And last but not least, we also remember the men and women who did not return from Vietnam today from the Vietnam War there are 1,581 Americans listed as missing in action or, or uh, not re, not been uh, repatriated. And of that, 50 Green Berets from the secret war are amongst that number. From Laos, Cambodia, and North Vietnam, the remains are still there. And the way our government's gone, they'll never be brought home, sad to say. Mm-hmm. And also we add that we documented Eighty-three aviators who were amongst that 1,581 who died in support of SOG men on the ground like Dale Hansen and the recon teams during the eight-year secret war in Vietnam. God bless America. Amen. Welcome back to SOG number 34. I'm joined by Tech Tom, our top secret agent here who we cannot identify at this time formally but has been a critical player on the Jocko Willink SOGCast, SOG Solid Chronicles team. And welcome back from Travels so Afar. And uh, welcome to SOGCast number 34.
1: Feels like forever since I've been <laughs> sitting in this chair, forgetting what to say now. We yeah, haven't uh, done it this uh, last year. Whew, yeah. <laughs> literally we're been, rolling again now. Yeah, we are definitely rolling again. And, uh, you know, it's great to be back. And, uh, Good to listening, have you back. Yeah, listening to these stories and listening to Dale talk. I mean, yeah, like uh, you know, Ford Drum had no clue, and I, you know, grew up reading everything and anything. As you know, I could ever find on the Vietnam War, and yeah. never saw anything about anything Ford Drum re- related. So that makes two. I was inside,
2: and I yeah, how that did you know? One and four, and we never heard a word. It was so, it was so productive. Yeah. and I think it's a classic example of the less people who know, except for the guys that are doing it and turn over the intel, the better. Yes. The classic well, example of a great intel operator. I'm not sure who came up with it. I wonder if Heine Hal- Alderbach came out with that. That or was hard not. Yes.
1: Thinking about being that <clears> low <throat> in an aircraft, flying <laughs> oh through trees, tipped on your side. Yeah, and three <laughs> like, or four barf bags in one yeah. day. I mean, just <laughs> I can still see a, him throwing it out though, right back in you in the face. Because uh, I think we've all experienced. We, I think we've we experienced it one time or another on a maybe uh, on a you know, possibly on helicopters.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Well, we had those those little bird dogs, and at some yeah. point, you could, they just got you.
1: Oh, that was, yeah, that's unreal. And then, yeah, I don't know about setting up a Ron site on Minh Trail, huh? I know. I'm trying to think. Like, Not Typically, too- you look for that hideaway spot where <laughs> yeah. nobody's going to go. Not the interstate.
2: Right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just that part of the book. When I'm reading, I'm sitting there with my jaws on the floor going like, you did what <laughs> you and captain roach did what oh my god and you wait and you lived to talk about it maybe yeah. others that were on the trail that had severe consequences but in this case yeah. they just did it and they took the fight to the nva
1: Well who else did that though that's uh, you guys were wiretapping it and sitting on next to it
2: next to the trail yeah we're, we weren't you, we, you weren't we, on it we crossed it <laughs> And when we had to do our e and e, we crossed it again, <laughs> but we weren't on it. You weren't on it. Trust they're, me. they're just you like stayed, at,
1: they're at a, a fork in the road and go. Let's go in the V. That's a good even, spot. <laughs> yeah.
2: Even his recon days, I think Dale would have said we try to stay away from the trails. We may have to cross some or ambush get a good yeah. ambush. There's great stories from Sawcast 33 on a uh, on some of those ambushes that uh, they pulled off. Yeah, and the one in Amazing. the
1: in the in the in the, <clears throat> the brush when they're they're lined up and the deer come through, it's <laughs> like. You know, the whole time I'm sitting here listening to that and I'm listening to like, oh, they're pushing them. And, uh, you know, I've done hunting in the past and it's like we've driven deer, very similar situation. But usually you have radios, so you're communicating with your guys. So they, you know where they are and they weren't communicating. It didn't sound like at least, um, I don't know, you know, obviously for obvious reasons, they don't want to come up on a radio and get found. So they didn't want to let the enemy know, but it's like, how far did you know your people were going to be because that's like i mean you had to wait until those enemy broke through the brush and you could actually identify them as oh yep that's a bad guy i'm going to go ahead and now nah, we're going to do this oh yeah but i mean you still don't know how far back your guys are how far your rounds going to go through that brush you know hopefully they stopped early enough that they you know and had a plan but uh you know i didn't didn't hear that so i was wondering i was like oh my god like that's like yeah. the most dangerous thing I could, have, that was like a Polish ambush, what we used to call, you know, t- you line up on this side of the road, this side ends up on this side of the road, and the enemy walks between you, shoot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know a, if I could say be, that anymore now, I get in trouble. Three,
2: right, there'd be two or three dead <laughs> and many friendly. <laughs> many <wounded>. friendly, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but yeah, I mean, trying to take pictures and hold a car 15 out of a window of a plane. Is
2: <laughs> I know. But John Plaster and other guys like Pat Walk and Spider Parks, that have flown Covey, all at some point when they're Covey riders, open fire in their O2 or O1 yeah. with a car 15 or an M79. Or but they Army weren't taking troops. pictures. They weren't taking pictures. At the indeed. same time. <laughs> indeed.
1: <laughs> and and trying to hold a, a barf bag. Barf bag.
2: <laughs> That's the first time I heard a story about uh, troops dining courtesy of the NVA. Yeah. They chased them to the hell out of the camp and ate their food. They're like, mean, oh, it doesn't look. get any better than that. Dinner. And then Dale covers a, <laughs> has a cover story with the Nook mom for the bad yeah. breath. <laughs>
1: so they blend in better. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe the I don't know, those two South Vietnamese officers that were on the radio. Oh yeah. Uh, you had Utmost restraint in that one because I think both of them would have ended up with a round in their head um, at oh, that yeah. point. Once someone told me what they were saying, it would have been over. They would have, they wouldn't have found them.
2: Well, you're <laughs> you're an Afghanistan vet yeah. and been to Iraq a little bit. You yeah. understand some of the questionable politics that we oh, encountered.
1: It's it's insane how how that works. But it's uh, the way that would have went down. I think it would just been a quick. You know, I don't know what happened to them. They were they were standing there. They walked off
2: somehow they walked into this bullet that's it's just it, flying through the air.
1: The jungle was there and it ate them. You know, I mean, no one could ever say anything because how are you going to find them? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> we got, what, 1,581 of them over there that we can't find. So if that's we right. can't find them, nobody's going to find those two.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it was a, 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 this is the second Sawcast we've had two back-to-back interviews. Yeah. The first with Lynn Black yep. with the uh, episodes 27 and 28 – And uh, this is just moving forward. I think the book is compelling with the stories and unique insights into this.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm going to get that one and his other ones. So I'm going to pick up all of Dale's books now.
2: And then um, that book will be coming out as an audio book soon. And that will be available as an audio book. (laughs) Finally, because now it's been the book's been out for several months and uh, we can move along. I think called progress.
1: So what was it? How long is that audio book? How long is the book? Like when you read it? four hundred fifteen hours. 15 hours. So is, when I listen to the book, it's going to take me 15 hours to go through it.
2: That'd be a good... When you drive to Wisconsin... Next I'm going to do
1: that. I'm going to get that, and we're going to listen to it as a family <laughs> going up to Wisconsin.
2: <laughs> well, any other closing thoughts from you, Casual Observer? No, Welcome just a,
1: another wonderful story from you know the heroes that were there that weren't there, but Who were did? there and uh you know that the things you guys did were amazing and that the fact that we had a command back then that wasn't so risk adverse is is oh, yeah. you know that's refreshing to see that we used to be that way you so, so a
2: lot of the world war ii guys were still around jack yeah. singlab yeah lob jack singlab and uh you know, we had five uh of the chief sogs or man sog and they were all world war ii vets yeah and they seen it they seen yeah. the elephant many the times
1: yeah definitely so yeah i look forward to reading the book listening to audiobook and uh reading the other books that uh dale has written so i think it'll be a it'll be a great time all
2: right well thank we thank dale again and we thank jocko willing productions echo charles and his team and again today for tech tom joining us and uh, we appreciate the sponsorship we encourage everybody to go to um Jocko Willing's website. You just Google Jocko for books, programs. You can Google Saw Chronicles for my books and any of these podcasts that have been produced already. They're listed there. And with any inquiries, you there's always an email address. And we're available on Instagram and Facebook. And we're thinking about Twitter now that we got a man who really. <laughs> is uh, representing opening. welcome to both sides yeah. of, the, of the political pendulum yeah again thank you again have god bless america until next time